I'm sitting here in my own house, minding my own business. Where you been? I don't think you can. I've been having a hell of a time. When I'm bad. End of question for the period. Hello, this is High Camp, the podcast where I try to watch all 406 movies from an out-of-print gay film guide before I die. I'm your host, Brian Rucker, and today I have the wonderful Irene Marquette here. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's nice to finally put a face to a name and a voice. Likewise. <laughs> I am such a fan of Goop Yourself. Oh, my God. And we both are fans of Aggie Hewitt. Aggie Hewitt, our, our mutual podcast host. I guess that's the yeah. uh, best way to say it. Yeah. Our collaborator friend exactly (laughs) uh yeah if you guys don't know uh the other podcast i host is with aggie hewitt Uh, it's called goop yourself and um the other podcast i host is called the experts and that's also with aggie hewitt and you guys are doing uh, a robert de niro series right now yeah so we're doing different series where we kind of take you know, deep dives into different topics. Our first one was on Anna Nicole Smith, which you can listen to. I was to. riveted to it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And then we did uh, one on erotica. Very sexy. It was <laughs> sexy and a dis- disgusting, disgusting and disturbing. Uh, and now we're we're lightening things up by watching Robert De Niro be just a vengeful misanthrope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, so. Are you? Were you? Did you decide on the Robert De Niro thing because The Irishman and Joker is is coming out? So it was a good time to do it, or is it just um, unrelated to that? Uh, yeah, yeah. We wanted to watch those new movies too, and it seemed like a good way to kind of yeah. bookend because I think when we're finishing up the series, The Irishman will be coming out, and our first episode was about the Joker. <laughs> yeah, I to be honest, I'm still one episode behind, so I haven't. I know Aggie's thoughts on the Joker. Well, Aggie and I disagree. Yes, and I I'm on Aggie's side on this, which is we do, we do not have to get into Joker uh, <laughs> debate right now. But I know we Aggie and I are in the in the minority, I believe. But I'm glad that you guys are on the same page. I guess I'm or, glad you have each other. Yeah, because we have it's like us and the 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 Venice Film Festival jury is basically <laughs> it. Um, yeah. Well. I'm sure, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> I don't think there's a right and a wrong. It's just what I, how I felt or what I didn't feel actually more it, accurate. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's funny. Cause like I, I talked about it with, with uh, Drew Drogi was on the podcast last week and at the beginning of every episode, you know, I talk about like what we've seen lately and I'd never been sort of nervous to ask someone's opinion about a, a movie. <laughs> like I can't remember the last time that I, uh, that I thought, oh, is this is this like a moral failing on my part, or is will will he not like me because I like this certain movie? Um, it's oh, weird. I think I uh, I love to disagree. Oh, yeah, like I love uh, I I love to have a conversation and to hear different points and to like make a passionate argument. Like those are some of my all time favorite nights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of my life totally. is like passionately. I remember. <laughs> I once got in a fight about the movie Carol, like a full fight. 
I was like so hot under the collar. The thing is, what's you great. Carol? No, no. What's great about this is that we both really loved the movie. Okay. We just disagreed about the significance of a certain scene. Mm-hmm. And we were arguing. And it just like, we were like standing in a corner like, no, I think, da-da, da-da, da-da. And, like, <laughs> I became aware of, like, oh, it looks like we're really fighting. <laughs> and we're just, like, talking about Carol, which we liked. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because it, people, you know, passionate people like us who have opinions about film and sometimes. have to let people know Exactly. Them. Come across as, I don't know, strident or whatever. But And some people, like, don't like to get into it with people. Strident. Uh, is that it? Is that a, a, a sexist word? Is that a No, loaded? no, no. It just reminds me. Did you ever see the movie Carol? Oh, or, yeah. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Margaret. Oh, my. M- Margaret. Margaret. Uh, my favorite movie of the past decade, perhaps. Well, she yeah. accuses Elaine May's daughter of being strident. Oh, yeah, Jeannie Berlin. Yes. yes. And there's that whole scene where it's like, there. It, it, it just, you saying it made me think of that. And I was like, oh, what a great movie. What a great scene. What a great word. That is, that is a, a brilliant masterpiece. And it's hard. It, if you guys haven't seen Margaret, I, you know, I've never even seen like the director's cut, the, the whatever oh, four hour version. I got a hold of it. My husband okay. and I watched it maybe within the last year. It's a tough movie to sit through. And, uh, but yeah, I need, maybe I can ask you to borrow that at some point. I feel like maybe we got it at the library. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's out there. Okay, cool, cool, cool. You can find it. I'll do, I'll look in my archives. Um, yeah, because it, <laughs> it like that movie it blew me. It, if you if you don't know, it was like in sort of development hell for a long time. Uh, uh, Kenneth Lonergan was trying to to get it made, and I, I don't even know the the details really. But it, it took it was like it was shot what like four or five years before it actually was released i think like six years yeah because there was some lawsuit after it was completed too and then it was stuck like it bounced around like in the studio did weinstein have something to do with this i forget i uh i mean let's blame it on him yeah definitely i think (laughs) i think that's probably a safe bet at this point i think that he well because the director's cut is like three hours and i think he turned it in and they were like no this you have to cut an hour out of this and he's like but my film. Yeah, and usually I'm on like the exec side with this stuff. Like, let's make it well, just not <laughs> not like I don't want to censor artists' vision, but most movies should be like 90 minutes. Uh, I mean, every once in a while you get a masterpiece like Margaret, but for the most part, I don't want to see a fucking you know two hour 20 minute movie. I am inclined to agree w- with you. I. I'm I'm inclined to agree. There are times where I love to sit in a long movie, but I feel like comedies Ugh. should not be two and a half no, hours no, no. long. Yeah, comedies, and I think the thing, it, uh, like superhero movies, to me, because I'm just not a big fan of the genre anyway. Nor am I, and because this is the the lingua franca of of uh, commercial contemporary filmmaking, all these movies are. <laughs> you know, so fucking long. And I would, you know, if it's a little, you know, indie drama or something, I don't mind that it's two and a half hours, but I don't need to see, and I liked Captain Marvel fine, but it didn't need to be however long it was. Well, and I feel like, to me, it feels like they are giving people like bang for their buck. It's like you're, it's it's a quantity thing. Like the movies are so expensive. And I think that there's more of a value there of it's like, Oh, for example, my sister has children. I don't have children. And when she and her husband have a night out to see a movie, she's like, I'm picking the longer one. 
And I was like, whoa, that's so, I, it just like never occurred to me. Yeah, I guess that makes sense if you're, you know, paying for a babysitter and you're. It's like I'm out. It's all, yeah, a whole night out. It's weird that, because you'd think <laughs> Better be that six hours long. <laughs> the studios and the theaters would want to cram more screenings in per day so they could make more money. But I guess that that's maybe not how the economics work. I don't really know. I don't know. I was thinking about that when I went to see Joker because we saw it in like that Dolby digital oh, yeah. theater, you know, where like the seats shake. That's it's four, what's it called? 4D. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I love Great. it. If they, I want like water sprayed on me. I want. Yeah. <laughs> the tingler. Totally. <laughs> but uh it was it was so expensive and like the seats are so spread apart and like it they are like giving you a luxury experience. Yeah. So I don't know. It must make sense. I feel like they don't do anything that doesn't make no sense. Uh, and they're gonna just make more because all they want is the money. Money. Well, I mean, I guess that's been the uh, like the film industry or every industry, capitalism every industry. in general, for as long as capitalism has existed. And I don't as long think, as people wanted money. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I think, and since, I don't know, people traded beads or whatever. It's been a while. Yeah. You kind of hard to be a hoarder in a system that is like barter based. That is true. I guess <laughs> that uh, the hoarder phenomenon went hand in hand with paper currency, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, Irene, before we get to talk about, oh, I haven't even said, we're talking about Johnny Guitar. Woo-hoo. Well, you guys know that because it says the it title of the podcast. The <laughs> but yeah, the Johnny, Johnny Guitar, Joan Crawford, Nicholas Ray. Uh, but before we get into that, I ask all my guests, what have you been watching lately? Um, TV, movies, doesn't have to do with camp, could be anything. Well, uh, within this past week, I watched it in two nights. Uh, I finally watched Fosse Verdon. Loved it. Yeah, it was really... A great um, experience watching it. Are you a Bob Fosse fan? Uh, casual. Like, I, I know his stuff a little bit just based on mostly secondhand or, like, movies. But I, I don't – well, I don't know if I've ever seen, like, a show that he choreographed. But I knew who he was, and I sort of knew who Gwen Verdon was. But I'm not, like, hu- a huge um, aficionado. Are you? I love Bob Fosse's okay. movies so much and this was kind of the thing that was like the barrier of entry for me mm-hmm. like I watched the first episode when it came out and the recreate recreation of that scene from uh sweet charity the hey big spender I was like oh no they're working on uh Damn cabaret. Oh, cabaret first yeah in the very first episode and it's like oh it's I don't want to watch a recreation of this because the real thing exists and the real thing is so perfect and so yeah. good. And then months went by and I got over myself and then I watched it and I was like, I really liked it. And they do a cool thing where they're like working with his material and kind of pushing against it. And like one of my all time favorite movies is all that jazz, like all time, all time favorites. And uh, the way that they are inspired by that movie for like, a lot of the transitions or even some scenes they recreate or they twist it and show you from a different perspective. So if you watch like a bunch of his movies and then maybe what, if you see some of the series again, you might yeah probably end up getting even more out of it. And I, I'm embarrassed to say I've only seen bits and pieces of all that jazz. I I've never seen it all the way through. I, it's a journey. I, I've heard it's, I mean, I think it's one of my husband's favorite movies. I don't know why I haven't seen the whole thing. Uh, I've obviously seen, Cab- seen Cabaret, which is great, but like, yeah, Sweet Charity and Damn Yankees, I'm, yeah, I'm not really familiar with them, so I didn't have as much to compare it to. 
Uh, Sweet Charity was at maybe the New Beverly recently and uh, went to see it, sat really, really close because... And like some of the movie is just so huge. Like there's a yeah. huge there's a musical number, um, I'm a brass band, where she's like in she's like in love and she like like the love is so big, like it's the only thing she wants, and you all of a sudden like there is a band behind her and it's like this massive marching band and they're like going across the Brooklyn Bridge and they're in downtown Manhattan and all the streets are empty and she's dressed like a majorette and it's just like the scale of it and like it looks like New York City is totally empty and it's just wow. her and it's like the feeling is so big yeah. it fills the street like that's what i love about him and like his stuff it's just so yeah it's it's super expansive it's just incredible. and and but still like personal i guess he he delves into the psychology of these characters yeah. on on this big scale what did you think uh did you think michelle williams captured gwen verdon in a particular way, I, like I was just blown away. I, I love Michelle Williams, and I was yes. just completely blown away by her performance. But I don't have enough reference to Gwen Verdon to really know if she captured her in that way. Well, you know what's fucked up is I love Bob Fosse, and I didn't know a whole lot about Gwen Verdon, mm-hmm. and like I knew her as a performer and a dancer. Wait, cause she's not in the movie of sweet charity. I forget. She is not oh, so, okay. in sweet charity. She's in damn Yankees, but she is in, there's a character in all that jazz played by an actress whose real life name is Leland Palmer. No, no joke. Shit. Yes. She's a woman. All you twin peaks heads out there. <laughs> yeah. You're going fucking ape shit. Um, <laughs> But she kind of plays the Gwen Verdon stand-in. Okay. And there's this great sequence where Roy Scheider as Bob Fosse is like complaining to his ex-wife who he has cast in the show, even though she's too old. It's like it's all like art imitates life, yeah, imitates yeah, yeah. art. It, it, like, especially thinking about uh I feel like the movie was really heavily influenced by or the show is really influenced by the movie. So the way that they kind of play off of each other is really interesting. Yeah. Like I thought uh, each episode in Fosse Verdon had a little bit of a, like a different structure and a different style depending yeah. on what it was talking about, which was really cool. Like the one episode in the Hamptons house. Oh, that I was love sort that of one. like a Neil Simon play. Yes. Uh, and obviously like the musical episode, there were different, different things that I thought, oh, this is a really, a really fun way to do a limited series and not being like constrained um, as far as style. Yeah. Do you know another great limited series was Patrick Melrose? Did you oh, see that? Oh, I never saw That was on Showtime. Showtime. I think. Yeah, I never saw it. It was oh really my, good. It is so good. Oh, cool. It's so good. I finally got a Showtime subscription to watch that new Kirsten Dunst show yes. on Becoming a God in Central Florida, which I love. I, re- to, I really like you it like too. It? Yeah. I'm a couple episodes behind. I just caught up yesterday. I think I watched three episodes yesterday Ooh. and it's getting better and better. It's like, it is definitely that Showtime, like weeds, um, sort of dramedy. Yeah. Uh, it's like hyper realistic or it's like that kind of magical realism. Yeah, a little heightened but, um, yeah. and a little goofy, but also, you know, dramatic. But I love Kirsten Dunst so much. I, I think this too. is one of her best roles ever. I think so too. And uh, the kid in the the oh my God. her uh, her upline, yeah, 
he is Theodore Pellerin or something. He's French Canadian. He's oh my god. He okay. He's very weird looking. He's he very is. skinny. He's young. He looks like he should be on Twin Peaks. But he's like hot to me. I'm so yeah. attracted to him, and I don't know why. Well, it's like as because I didn't feel that way at first. But did you see the episode where they're like on that retreat together? Yes. And he is just like so needy, totally. and so I was like, he's such a cuck. He is, but he's like kind of owning it in this way yeah. where I was like, huh. Well, they have this like dom sub relationship after a while, yeah. and he, she gives him a swirly or something, oh my doesn't God. she? Yeah, they're very hot together, and <laughs> and it's he's like definitely not like my type usually. No. It's sort of like twinky skin, and, and uh, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he's sexy. he he is sexy, and he's a good little actor. He's so good. I keep calling him the boy. He's like he is the boy. <laughs> yeah, um, his name is wait, what is this? It's Bonar, Cody Bonar, but Cody everyone says Boner, Bonar. which is a stupid joke. It it's is. like a very dumb joke. Joke, but it's funny. Um, the other thing, oh, our cat just or my cat just walked in. Dahlia, Hi, named Dahlia. after Los Angeles's most famous murder victim. Well, um, love it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I watched recently that sort of has to do with Fosse Verdon because it's a, a great actress playing another great actress is Renee Zellweger in Judy. And you have not seen this yet, right? No, I haven't. I heard she's great though. She's so wonderful. Like, do you have interest? Because I know Aggie said she has no interest in seeing this. I feel like this is one of the movies that I'll like maybe borrow somebody's screener. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, this will be uh, a little industry gossip, guys. This will definitely be like the first screener that comes out to yes. everyone. You can tell. It was yes. sort of like last year with The Wife that they just had like a million screeners in like right before New Year's. Like you'll get it immediately. Oh yeah. I feel like uh, come Thanksgiving. Yeah. Oh, probably. Yeah. yeah to yeah. everybody. It's like, you haven't paid your SAG dues. No, you don't care. You're not in any union. You just live in Los Angeles. Here's you're getting Judy. a TV screener. Uh, and the movie is, I mean, it's like a sort of by the numbers biopic in some senses. I, 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 I like how it, it sort of, sort of goes. Um, it takes place over just a few months, which is nice. It's not like a cradle to grave. There are terrible flashbacks. I wish the movie didn't have flashbacks because the girl playing a young Judy Garland is truly bad. Oh, big shoes to fill. Yeah, because Ruby like, slippers to fill. Exactly. And it, it's literally on the set of Wizard of Oz. And it's like scenes between her and Louis B. Mayer. And Louis B. Mayer is like very handsy with her. And I'm not yes. sure how real I don't I don't know enough about their relationship to say if that was true or not. But that version of Judy is so iconic in everyone's mind that like to get yeah. an actress that does not really capture her is a problem. Whereas like older Judy, I think is a, a little less, I don't know. Those performances are a little less known. Yeah. On purpose. And well, yeah. yeah, a lot of the, I mean, you have to kind of look for some of those pictures of her in her later years. Yeah. And Cause it was not good. What was, was going on? It was bad. I mean, in this, all, this movie takes place just, I think six months before she passes away. Oof. And so I do think they might have not whitewashed, but like made things a little rosier because, you know, Renee Zellweger is, is drinking and taking pills, but she's not at her um, at like the end of her rope in a way that I feel like maybe she would have been in real life. Yeah, I think like some of that stuff is if you were to do an honest portrayal of some of that, I think it's just too, too bleak dark. and too, yeah. Yeah. Cause this is, it's positioned as like a pretty commercial movie that like, you know, for an older audience, they can just mm -hmm. go to the Lemley Pasadena or whatever and like see it on a nice afternoon. And all those problems aside, her performance is truly brilliant in 
and not in like the regular biopic way. I feel like she, cause she doesn't do any sort of impersonation of her because she doesn't sound like her at all. And she doesn't really even look like her. Uh, but she captures a rave review. Well, but she like captures, <laughs> a, like an awkwardness or like, um, an insecurity and like not being in one's own body in a way that I feel like Judy yeah. was at the end of her life, which I think Renee, Renee has that in her too. She's, she's like a little manic and all over the place. And I thought, I don't know. I thought it really was successful. That's great. I, I for sure will see it. Cool. From the comfort of my home. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess it's doing well. <laughs> in a couple well. months, I hope. Yeah. Uh, are you, you're a big like movie in the theater person or you're like a wait for home, wait to see? Uh, I If I've got the time, I love yeah. to go to the movies. I've always loved to go to the movies. I always will. I don't have any problem going to see a movie by myself. Oh my God. I will occasionally see movies with other people, but like 75% of movies I see by myself. I mean, I just don't have the time for it that yeah. I used to, but... I had a car my senior year of high school, and I would leave and go to the movies. Hey, that is by a myself endorsement of <laughs> the movie Teen Irene and Cinema. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I'm like I'm gonna go see Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Oh my god! In the afternoon, I saw Breaking the Waves when I was 15 Oof. with my mother. Oh brother, how'd that go over? Uh, it made me fall in love with art cinema and Lars von Trier and uh it was but it was very awkward yes I saw um Requiem for a Dream with my mother mm. and and um I loved pie oh yeah pie's great pie is great and I was um doing I was working for this company when I was in high school uh where you would go see movies and then like mark down where the audience responded or if anybody walked out at what point they walked out and stuff like that oh, that's fun god it, i would take that job now oh yeah i know it was a, honestly a great job i wish that i had um taken better care of it <laughs> you know when you're like a dumbass oh, when you're yeah. i th- i did it for a couple of years i think but then at some point i just like let it drop away for sure uh but i when requiem came out i was like we've got to go see this and we went and then I remember not saying a word yeah. and just feeling ill. It's it's rough. It is rough. Breaking what, the waves is rough too. Breaking the waves. It, Different kind of rough. Well, sort of, but sort of. It's like a, a woman suffering <laughs> both of the movies. Yeah, yeah. I uh, and they're both really sexually explicit <laughs> at points too. They are, and they're um, well, one definitely more than the other. But there's like a real violence to both of them and like a despair that is just so awful. Yeah. I don't know why I gravitate towards the stories. I, yeah, I do too. I read after I saw Requiem, even though I I was like so disgusted by it, I ended up reading a bunch of Hubert Selby Jr. who wrote the book. Okay. Oh man. It's dark. I didn't even know it was based on a book. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, Brian, you're an idiot, but... Oh, no. <laughs> Aronofsky... Well, it's funny. Aronofsky and Von Trier are still, like, making movies. And I guess Aronofsky is making movies, like, on a big scale. Yeah. Well, maybe not. I, I don't know. I like I like all of their movies. I even like The House that Jack Built a lot. And I watch that in the comfort of my own home because it barely played in theaters. <laughs> yes. People are like, no, thank you. No. Oh, boy. Well, check them out. I, um... Yeah. I, I have a real... Mostly hate relationship with old Lars. I get it. I get but it. But I do think I think Dogville is a great movie. Truly Brechtian. Yeah, it's the most 
the leading example of Brechtian cinema. Yeah, the most premier, the premier. Absolutely. Example. But I, I get he uh, is perhaps a misogynist. Perhaps. Whereas, well, in Breaking the Waves, I think he everyone, actively hates women. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But like back then, it was like, oh my god, he wrote a story with like a female lead, and so he's like a like a champion of women. Yeah, I saw that that movie. I didn't see it uh, when it came out. I saw it when I was in my early twenties, um, and when I saw it, I flew into a rage about it Got that it. I could this is one of those things where I'm arguing like really <laughs> yeah. passionately arguing. hey no you're not the only one yeah and somebody w- w- was like it's romantic and I'm like it's not romantic it's disgusting the idea of like a woman having to suffer and to be a saint it's so puritanical oh absolutely yeah, he's. Uh, but the, I guess there's a romance to it. I that that's another movie, much like, um, well, much like Judy, not really like Judy at all. But the the central <laughs> performance is, uh, so, um, just out like extraordinary, uh, by Emily Watson that, and I, I like the movie anyway. But it is yeah, I think. Well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say she might have the the best performance ever committed to film. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that, but it's one of them. He does get really great performances yeah. out of it. that performance. Kirsten Dunst Melancholia. and Melancholia is really great. Bjork acted once in her life, never again. She had a horrible he was time. Such an asshole, just a complete monster. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So torture. Who knows? Emotional torture. Absolutely, but you know, gets good work out of the ladies. So. We like cinema. We do like cinema. We should probably move on to our main topic of conversation. Yes, let's do it. It is 1954's Johnny Guitar, starring Miss Joan Crawford. Irene, I sent you a ridiculous list of 406 movies, and you came back to me um, with a couple choices, this being the first one. What made you want to watch this movie? Well, I uh, saw this movie a few years ago and I was so surprised by it. I uh, can't think of any other examples of a Western, and I do like Westerns in general, but um, to have a female protagonist and a female antagonist and uh, the themes of the movie are so progressive that her character is so progressive I love the honesty uh, how of how they treated her past. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about all those things. Yeah, it it it, it, it this movie flummoxes me really because I I saw it uh, just a few months ago for the first time. It was really hard to find, and I, I'd been a Joan, Joan Crawford fan for a while. And this was sort of one of those movies that maybe was not as widely seen, but the real like Crawford heads out there would say, you know, this is one of the great performances. She got the rights to the book. Yeah. She was the one who made this movie happen. She made it happen. Um, Which is pretty awesome. It's she's, I mean, yeah, truly. I mean, I don't have to tell the listeners of high camp that Joan Crawford is iconic, but yeah. (laughs) Well, and it feels like um, it feels really personal. And when uh, I, I don't, I'm sure that you know about Joan Crawford, like, Either whether it's true or rumor, I feel like it's probably true. Like she fucked her way into being famous. Like there's no way she wasn't ever going to be famous. Uh, Yeah. Like she, I mean, I think a lot of, we were were talking before we started recording a little bit about Louise Brooks too. But uh, I think a lot of those actresses, um, that 
was the only way and up through Marilyn Monroe and, you know, even obviously beyond. Um, but that was one of the only ways that, uh, women could get ahead in the industry, which is horrifying. Uh, and I don't think that this was something that she wanted her public to know necessarily. No, but I think that it was maybe an open secret that she yeah. wasn't ashamed of because I think, um, like, uh, Oh, the unwillingness of her character to feel shame for her past is such an important part of the movie. And knowing the rumors about Joan Crawford, I can't help but think like that's her communicating to us. Like, how does it matter how she paid for the boards in this saloon? And they they mention it. I mean, over and over again, she has several monologues where she talks about um having to sleep with men in order to get any sort of power in this society in the old West. And yeah, you're right. It has, it has to be somewhat autobiographical. Uh, and people think of Joan Crawford as having such a mask as a performer and not letting herself into her performances. Mm -hmm. And, but yeah, she like communicates something in this and in a lot of our other movies, I think that, that uh, actresses of her generation weren't really allowed to do by like getting, having, you know, tell all books and interviews and stuff that was not talked about. No. And I feel like she was, she was a real modern woman and, uh, to, to come of age during like that flapper era and to be like, Oh, I can sleep around and I can drink and I can have fun and laugh yeah. and like wear no pantyhose and wear no bra and cut off all my hair. And like, you know, that was a, really the first generation of American women who had that kind of like sexual freedom and like were op like allowed to really flaunt it. So it's it's cool to think about her and like as this like picture of her time period mm -hmm. and then growing old into it because. She's not young in this movie. No, I mean, this was in 1954. So I did an episode uh, a couple weeks ago on Straight Jacket, which is, I think, from 1964 with Joan Crawford. It's a William Castle movie. And she plays basically an old lady who uh, gets let out of an insane asylum after 20 years. Or it was 66, I think. But yeah, this is a full decade before that. But still, you know, 20 years after what you what the industry would say is like her heyday as an ingenue. Yeah. Um, She's definitely, uh, I mean, she looks and feels middle-aged in yeah. the movie and it, it allows her a certain amount of freedom uh, to be, cause she's really butch in this movie. Yeah. If you guys haven't seen, uh, go see this movie or at least look at stills of her, but yeah, she's basically in drag. I mean, yeah. uh, in these, That's I mean, great. primary, the whole movie is, it's an, in, it's called true color, which I guess was like a competitor to Technicolor, mm. but it is just the most gorgeous primary colors, uh, both the interiors and the exteriors. It's a, it's a weird, I mean, just almost surrealist color palette. It's so beautiful. That's the other thing. I wanted to like remember how beautiful yeah. the movie is too, because all those colors are so vibrant. She's in like red button up shirts and like dark blue denim. Yeah, there's a yellow top at the end of the uh, of the, yes. the movie that is crazy. Um, and yeah, I don't. I think this is like the butchest. She's because she she always has sort of like a I don't know square jaw and obviously she's like uh, someone that drag queens impersonate a lot. Yes, but this is so explicit. Um, so explicitly masculine 
in a way that I don't think she had been able to be up until then, at least. No. And it's so it's interesting to think, too, about how that kind of face ages. And you look at pictures of her when she was a flapper and she had that bob haircut and she's like got like a devilish smile and that strong jaw. And you think about supermodels and those like strong angles and they do like look more masculine as they get older and like they thin out. And she looks very masculine in the movie and they let her lean into it. And it's like, it's, there's no conflict there. It's, she's lit, like, she's got this lover who comes through town. You just feel like she's free and she's just like being herself. Yeah, she's, she's uh, totally butch and totally masculine and yet completely, uh, unapologetic and in control of her sexuality as a woman. And yeah. And you would think, okay, if in the fifties, if there was a movie at all about someone who doesn't conform to whatever gender stereotypes that that would be the whole movie is her, uh, internal conflict or some external conflict. And I guess you see that in the character of Emma. Right. And it feel, um, Emma being like the main antagonist who is like leading, Leading the charge to drive. Uh, so Joan Crawford plays um, do, do, do Vienna. Vienna. Yeah. A saloon owner. A saloon owner. A former whore. A former whore that she will not stop talking about. Uh, <laughs> and and Emma is played by Mercedes McCambridge, um, who I believe was not maybe at this point, but later in her life was an out lesbian. Oh, really? I don't quote me on that, but I think so. Well, I mean, you feel the subtext of it in the movie. Like the primary, it, it feels like there's a competition between them. That feels like there's, um, there is a, te- there's a real tension. I thought between yeah. the two of them, and there's like other men in the mix. It's like, oh, dancing Johnny makes her feel like a woman. That's why she's so angry. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. This, There's like uh, a palpable sexuality. Like, yeah, the dancing kid. Oh, yeah, is yeah, the dancing the, kid. The man who purportedly is the reason for their conflict because Emma is in love with the dancing kid, and and but he and Vienna have had sort of an on-again, off-again, casual sexual relationship. Yeah. Uh, but then... Very modern. Very, very modern. But then the title character... so. It's weird. So uh, Johnny Guitar is the title character. He's played by uh, Sterling, Sterling Hayden. Hayden, the great Sterling Hayden. So gruff. Yeah, I didn't. I like literally didn't even realize this is the same guy from Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, um, and he's he's a little older too in this. He's not like a you know twenty something twink. No, this is like it's great because these are people who have like lived lives. They've like they've lived hard. They're like at the end. It's like. Can we just relax? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, can we just like we've hustled enough? Like, can we just take it easy take now? Take it easy. Let's get together. Let's run the saloon. So he's a ex gunslinger who now has like put down his rifle to play guitar, and he comes to town um, to reclaim the woman that he turned his back on five years before. <laughs> he's like, didn't you wait for me? And Vienna. <laughs> hates him at first or you know there's like that that she's playing hard to get she's playing hard to get exactly and so meanwhile there's like a bank robbery and emma's brother has been killed um and then there's the dancing kid and these other bank robbers and emma is this sort of you don't know her yeah her role in town but she's she's this sexless puritanical um you never really quite know 
where her anger's coming from? To me, I felt like she was very sexually charged okay. and I thought it was repression. I felt yes. like she's the she's the embodiment of repression and Joan Crawford is the embodiment of freedom and it's like this is all like this is now. This is like anytime I mean, it's amazing to think about the Wild West and people going to escape persecution, to live free, like people, everybody wants to live free and to have everybody else live exactly the way they have decided to live. And it's it's the conflict between that of like somebody who really is trying to live free. She's not going to escape what she's done. She's going to like embrace herself as a full person. Yeah. And then these people who are like, we we have gone so far outside of normal society so that we can like cloister ourselves up and live our little small minded life. Yeah, re- repeating uh, the same mistakes that you know that the 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 Puritans and the Pilgrims and the thirteen original colonies like <laughs> like I think it's part of human nature. Or maybe it's just sort of American nature is to have these sexually repressed feelings. Or uh, yeah, I don't know, but. I felt that gunfight at the end was, uh, it felt very symbolic. Absolutely. Because you don't see, I mean, you never see Westerns, especially from this, from the 1950s, like uh, starring women as the villain and the hero. No, that's, I mean, that's interesting that you brought that up that like, I mean, there are, there are Westerns with female leads but to have that protagonist and the antagonist and then all these men sort of encircling them. And then being like, I don't know, what do you guys think? Because at the end, they're like, the whole way they're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> it's like their sense of chivalry is making them listen to her, even though they all know that Emma is wrong. Yeah, yeah, she she has some power over the town. Uh, and so she's, yeah, she's trying to get like these people banned because she claims that they killed her brother and then she's trying to get... Um, Vienna killed, yeah, uh, hanged, and yeah, everyone just sort of because she she's such a force of nature and she's so she she claims to be so moral that I think everyone just sort of like goes along with what she's saying. Yeah, and I think that there is well, like it's part of the patriarchal like setup where women rarely assert themselves and she's asserting herself in this like righteous way. She's the sister of like the brother who was murdered. And I feel like there's, there's this, it's like men standing up when women enter the room. Like there are these times where all that stuff just like, like the very fabric of how culture is supposed to be. Everyone realizes that it actually doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Which I feel like is kind of, part of this and Joan Crawford is such a chaotic like free like truly free character and yeah she's she's such a an individual that I think if Emma wasn't there everyone would sort of leave her to her own devices oh my god they'd love her that place would be packed every night yeah. they all want to hang out in there well and she's also smart economically because she keeps mentioning oh that she had some knowledge of the railroad is going to come through so if they just can hold on to this bar for a little longer they're going to make a ton of money. Yes. And I think Emma's probably also like jealous of her economic independence as well as her sexual independence. And I guess those two are linked. Very much linked because yeah. And it's, uh, it's progress. It's the embrace of Mm -hmm. progress and the future. And I think Emma knows her place in a system that is set up the way it's set up. Like you don't, 
like she's figured out how to live in a world that's run by men. And now this tramp comes along and opens up a bar and is like sleeping with any eligible man in town. Yeah. I don't think so. And yeah, she just needs to, needs she to needs stop to get that. laid. Oh my God. Yeah. Like her, she's so great in this movie too. She is great. Um, just the pure like repression and, and fury and I don't know, self-loathing. Everything is just in on her face. And, She's a monster. Oh my god! Yeah, no. What a one of the great villains. Um. So there, there's there's so many layers to this movie, and there's so like there's so many different readings of it. More mm-hmm. so than most of these movies that we talk about on this podcast. I think at the time, and I think now still, people read it as an allegory about the um, the McCarthy. Uh, era and 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 naming names and all that stuff um which i think is i guess relevant today (laughs) yeah well and i i mean it it all kind of boils down to the same thing like there's people who want to live free and there's people who are afraid of being free and they try to smash out the people who are actually free yeah and it's like whether that's mccarthyism or you know sexual repression or whatever (laughs) yes it's like it's the the same instinct. And like, I guess there was, um, I don't know if it's true. I've read differing sort of accounts, but the screenwriter, the credited screenwriter was, I guess, not really a writer. He was like a script doctor. So a lot of people think that um, his name is Philip Jordan. A lot of people think that he was just sort of a front for a blacklisted writer named Ben Maddow but then other people don't like I've I don't know I was reading doing a lot of internet research so I don't know if that's true but in the 50s there I mean this was happening at this time so like there there weren't a lot of artistic statements about the McCarthy era obviously there was Arthur Miller's Crucible which was I think on like on Broadway so it wasn't a movie till much later so I think that sort of got let it have a little bit of a pass and I mean, this is so early yeah. for that nineteen fifty four. Yeah, this was right in the heart of the 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 heart of everything. Uh, Spartacus is another movie that I think makes like oblique references to the McCarthy era, um, but it's pretty. I mean, and also this movie didn't do well at the time. It was like critically lambasted, and it like didn't make money. But I wonder how much of that has to do with um, how sort of on the ball it was politically. Yeah. And uh, I guess there were a lot of rumors afterwards that Joan Crawford was really hard to work with. Ooh, yeah. And but it seems like there were differing accounts. Like some people thought she was really nice and, you know, like anything. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like I read that she was apparently drinking a lot like was drunk sort of shooting this movie. But then I also kind of got drunk face. Yeah. But then I also read that Mercedes, Mercedes McCambridge was like battling alcoholism. This yeah. is all from Wikipedia. I so, saw that yeah. as well. <laughs> so I don't know, but I, they were both just wasted the whole time and hated each other, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I'm, yeah, Sterling Hayden didn't like working with Joan Crawford either. So who knows? I mean, all these like stories are so apocryphal and like, you never know what to believe. I guess with Joan Crawford, there's enough sort of, um, enough baggage to like go through her whole career that I guess she was difficult to work with, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I, uh, there's a, there's a series that, um, Karina Longworth did on, you must remember this about Joan Crawford. It's maybe like four or five episodes and it's been a while since I've listened to it, but I remember really enjoying it and it, um, and getting a different perspective on, on her and, the kind of career that she, because I like, maybe she wasn't as difficult as we thought. 
you know? Yeah. Well, I think like these stories sort of snowball after a long time. And then um, obviously with the inherent sexism of Hollywood and everything, like, you know, a quote unquote difficult woman is means a different thing than a difficult man. And like you said at the beginning of this, she, she had the rights to this book. She was sort of the auteur of this movie. Yeah. And her career was already, I mean, it's like, I think Joan Crawford is sort of always known for her career being on a downslide and her having had to have a comeback. And it happened over and over and over again from, like you said, the flapper era to, you know, uh, being, being in talkies and was one of the only actresses from her generation that even made it to the mid thirties and then getting the Oscar for Mildred Pierce and then this, and then baby Jane, it's like every decade she had to fucking do all this shit. She really teeters, uh, 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 in this movie, like at times it feels very big and campy and her face just alone is so campy. Like that is a stage face. You can re- you could read that, fa- uh, that someone could be playing this movie on a cell phone and you could be like 40 <laughs> feet away and you'd be like, is that Joan Crawford? Yeah. Like it's just so severe. It, and with the, the color palette, just how bright it is, it, it accentuates that severity. Yes. And then, and her performance, and I have to be honest, like this is probably not my favorite performance of hers uh-huh. because she she does seem, and I think she's doing this on purpose, she seems a little stiff, like she's sort of playing up the masculine traits of her character. Yeah, that's how I interpreted it. And she's like staring off into the middle distance a lot. I don't know if she was directed that way, but she always seems to be like looking over the horizon, even if she's in the bar. It's very yeah. strange. Yes, it's true. It is like she's looking out onto the horizon. It's funny to see a movie like this and have it like the mix of um, like sets and like like staged uh, where they're filming on a stage and then they're filming like on a location. Location, location, yeah. And they cut like they'll, you know, ride on horses and then they'll walk onto a bridge and then they'll cut in for close up. And it's like the time of day is all off. It's so weird. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the, the most egregious example of that is the scene where they're in the buggy and it's just the like stock footage. Yes. of It's almost like a, like a Wile E. Coyote cartoon in yeah, the background. Zipping past. Uh, but it, the the first big set piece in the bar, it's like it's like a. 30 or 40 minute scene that's it's almost like a play with everyone coming in and out um it's yeah it's amazing i agree it's like the hateful eight (laughs) (laughs) that has to be a reference for tarantino yeah i think so because that that like shack that they're in in the hateful eight does look a lot like the bar huh yeah. yeah, and uh, it also, when I was watching it yesterday, I was like, oh, I want to play Red Dead Re- Redemption again. Did you play that? <laughs> no. Do you ever play that? Uh-uh. I'm not like a video game person at all. I That's the only video game okay. that I really get into because it's just, like you're just it's like a shooter game. Yes. And you're also like on a horse like it's like there's a story that you follow and there's bandits and like you're a bad guy and all this stuff. But it is just like. Miles and miles of open country. Just you want a horse and like landscape unfolds. You go for a hunt. Ooh. You capture a wild stallion and you tame it. See, like games, I need, like I like Mario Kart because it's just very uh, concise. Well, it is meditative. Yeah, but it's like the the races are three minutes long. You don't have to like think too hard. I I love uh, film noir and like all that stuff. So I I bought a a video game called LA Noir. Ooh. Ugh, and it's not for me. It's like, it's so complicated. 
if I want to see a, com- I should have known this about myself, but if I want to see like a complicated noir plot, I just want to watch the movie. I don't want to actually like have to figure it out myself. Yes. Just like let it wash over. You. Yeah. And so I need like very simple, like arcade style games, I think. And then I just get too frustrated and I stop playing them after a few days. I don't know. Yeah. That's, um, I generally am like that, but for whatever reason, this game, this is the one. It's wait, red death. Red, red, red dead. Red dead. Redemption <laughs> two. Is it on a Nintendo? Oh, no, no it's on another one. Okay. A, a PlayStation so, or something? Sure, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's on a PlayStation, uh, and it's pretty fun. Cool. I'll but I just like watching this movie. I'm like, oh, gosh, these... I, I love the I love the West. Yeah, I, I love I mean, the Wild West. Because you're you're from Las Vegas. Originally? Yes, okay. Vegas and uh, Albuquerque, New oh, Mexico. Oh, oh wow! So you're local to to Johnny Guitar. I they am talk local. about Albuquerque all the time. Yeah, Albuquerque. They Albuquerque. Call it. Yeah, yeah. Her accent. I mean, also Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford is from Texas, but like she doesn't sound like it. No. Um, and she has. I mean, like you know this that generation of like trained actresses. She has the weirdest diction in some. She does. It's so, but it's so great. It's so funny. Yes, and I love um, Sterling Hayden's voice too. Like yeah. it's so old, like distinct and totally. old fashioned. And like Joan Crawford has, because you, she has like a flat vowel sometimes where she sounds like a normal person. She's not like <laughs> Catherine Hepburn. No, but then, and I think what's funny about it is the inconsistency because she she will just sound like a normal American, and then she'll like <laughs> pronounce one word in an affected way. And you're like, what the fuck are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, what about the scene when the whole town is coming and she, um, excuses her staff and puts on that white dress and sits at the piano. (laughs) I mean, that is the greatest scene in the movie. Uh, and I actually like in the little theme song for this podcast, I clip a bunch of movies and that was one, one of the, if you, if you're, a frequent listener of the podcast, (laughs) you might recognize a clip from Johnny guitar. So yeah, she's like, Everyone is coming to town and she just, yeah, like you said, turns, changes into this white dress and just like starts tinkling the keys. <laughs> playing them. Playing the theme song from the movie, which in the end credits is, is sung by Peggy Lee. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. They, uh, she gets away. And does. so does Johnny Guitar. She wins her gunfight. I mean, so she would have gotten away because that was that the scene where she almost gets away, but then the stupid what's his name Turkey falls out of the table. Oh yes, in that one with yeah. the yes, and so she's like a little like deer in the headlights. Um, and then they yeah they're about to hang her, but then at the end there's a, the big shootout big between shootout. her and Emma, and she went and it's again the women and a shootout. Yeah, it, like, Emma gets a full like fall off a porch, roll down a hill moment, and just lands face down in a little like. <laughs> streaming brook and like everyone's just sort of looking at her like oh this girl's dead now uh and then johnny and vienna well the fucking vienna's is burned down to the ground so they have to leave unfortunately burned to a crisp and she paid out her staff she gave yeah, them six nice months them. that was really nice that is she's a severance good boss. pay yeah six months severance hey i've never gotten six months severance no who has yeah. come on uh in this day and age oh that's some like Old school. That's some. That's some Bernie style socialism. <laughs> yes, that's why. That's why the West was settled. <laughs> exactly. So we could live free. God. Uh, Pay people what they're worth. So, what else is there to but say? But she gets. <laughs> she, they escape together, right, right, right. and then they end up under a waterfall, and they have this very like romantic kiss. Yeah, and it's the one. It's the one moment where 
I mean, they have like sort of sexual chemistry before them, but it's 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 almost the most conventional romantic moment. It's the the very end. It's like the the you know the boy and the girl get together. Yes. And throughout the whole movie, she's sort of flouting these sexual norms, and then at the end, I mean, I don't know. It still is like effective, but it, it seems more just conventional than the rest of the movie. I've yes, I felt like. Um... Uh, because you know, they were together and then he left and she was on her own for five years and she had to like make her own way. And that she's like had many lovers since he's been gone. She's like, how could you possibly expect me to wait for you? Yeah. She, he's like, how many, how many men have you been with and forgotten? And she's like, well, as many as, and as many women as you've been with and remembered. Ooh. And that was like a good line. <laughs> uh, that is good. Yeah. But I kind of felt like, you know, they both had so much baggage and they both had these lives that they were running from. And uh, they, you know, it's like it is conventional, but it is also this thing of like, oh, you can defeat. You can like put the past beside behind you and like now they can move forward now they're both like really free yeah they have a fresh fresh start and she still has the knowledge of how to manage a bar and they could go anywhere they know where the railroad's leading so they can go anywhere and start fresh yeah um and like as a revisionist and i i'm not a western scholar but this was I mean, maybe the first revisionist Western. I don't know. Like High Noon, I guess some people consider a revisionist Western. But then other, like in the 60s, there was all that like Italian um, Clint Eastwood stuff. And then obviously leading up to Unforgiven. But this was a radical movie for 1954 to be released in the studio system. Yeah, it I think so. It, I feel like I, I am not a Western scholar either, but um, I just watched Taxi Driver recently. and it Classic made, Western. Uh, classic Western. But it was inspired by The Searchers. And I think that that was maybe unusual because of the anti-hero nature of it. And that's true. The searchers is, I don't know what year that was though. I feel like that's early. It, or I mean, I feel like maybe it was before Johnny Guitar. It might have. It's probably around the same time because Natalie, well, Natalie, Natalie Wood. Wood was like a teenager, so it probably was like mid fifties. But that movie, compared with Johnny Guitar, The Searcher seems very uh, traditional because it's still the 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 man rescuing the girl and yes. All but that I stuff. think that like Taxi Driver, like you are supposed to like the morality is unclear, okay, and yeah. he's not a even though. Maybe like the end result is heroic in some way. I don't think that he gets there like in a good way. That's like true. it's I think it's it leaves kind of more questions than it answers. I don't think it's a cut and dry sure. like this is good and this is bad and the good guys are good. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a little more muddy, but yeah, maybe more traditional Western. Yeah, I was just thinking like for someone, an audience member to go into this movie and it must have been bizarre to oh, be like sure. these two women fighting it out, and it's and but it's not even colored. about yeah, oh well, yeah, candy colored, but like it doesn't even really call attention to the fact that it's women in the lead roles. It just sort of it just um, is the world is yeah, it's a given in this world, and people must have just been like, what the fuck is this? Uh, when I was in Vegas, there you know, there's um like ghost towns around um, Vegas and just like Nevada in general. And I, some of them are, are touristy. So you can yeah. go look at all the ruins and then go to, a Oh yeah. I've been to uh Virginia city. I think that's more North. Oh, by like Tahoe Reno area. Right? I have not been there, but in one of those towns, I bought a book called soiled doves about like prostitutes in the wild west. And 
It's a great book. Soiled doves. Soiled doves. Get it at your nearest ghost town. <laughs> Get it there. You know I'm going to get a freaky book and read it all the way through. Oh, my God. But it is like very much like she is uh, like that is the kind of woman that succeeded in the Wild West. Like women went, they like they made money the only way they knew how. And then they ran brothels. They ran saloons like there was um female leadership in a way that you couldn't necessarily have it in like modern like settled cities yeah farther east yeah i guess i mean everyone sort of prospecting and and going west at that time had to have been somewhat of an outsider or yeah there had to have been some reason why they would up and 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 leave their life and it must have been yeah i mean We've all watched Deadwood or part of I've only watched the first season, but it's really good. But yeah, it's like all a bunch of a bunch of crazy people. Yeah. Um and, and Merritt Weaver. Oh my god. Is she in that? No, no she's but in Godless. She's in Godless. There's another woman that is a Merritt Weaver type in Deadwood. Right. As she the, plays the therapist and Big, Big Little Lies. Lies. Yes. <laughs> Classic Western heroines. Uh Irene, it's getting to be that time. Uh, oh wait, I didn't even do here before we before we get to the end of the podcast. I am going to read a little bit of Paul Rowan's review of Johnny Guitar. Oh great! Now, if this is the first episode of High Camp that you're listening to, let me just tell you, I stole the name of this podcast from a duo of gay film guides released in the '90s, written by uh, an amateur film critic and professional librarian from Duluth, Minnesota. His name was Paul Rowan, and he wrote reviews of all these movies. So, and I won't read all of it, but Johnny Guitar. Even in a book on camp, this gothic, operatic, multifaceted Western comes off as sounding somewhat bizarre. Joan Crawford stars as Vienna, a saloon keeper who stands to profit enormously when the railroad crosses her property. She's opposed by Emma Small, Mercedes McCambridge, a frustrated spinster who's the richest woman in town. Emma loathes progress and more especially is pathologically jealous of Joan and her cronies, the dancing kid, and his, da- his gang of would-be criminals. As Joan puts it, she's in love with the kid. He makes her feel like a woman, and that frightens her. <laughs> Several critics have pointed out that Emma's fanatical determination to rid the range of riffraff is actually an elaborate parody of early 50s witch hunts intended to purge the country of communists. Director Nicholas Ray is careful to make the correlation perfectly clear. As in the scene which finds Emma and the black-clad lynch mom she leads, lynch mob she leads, They've just come straight from her brother's funeral, interrogating a frightened prisoner. Their lying lips promise clemency, if only he'll name the right names. Um, yeah, I mean, there you go. That's great. Uh, yeah, he's a good writer. He's like, it's a, yeah, it's funny to just read his, his reviews because he has so many opinions, as we all do. I love opinions. And I love Carmen Miranda being on the cover. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, go back to episode two of High Camp, um, where we talk about the gangs all here. Which is a, um, the cover of High Camp is a still from that movie. Carmen Miranda's great. She is great. Uh, Irene, before yes. we go, yes. I ask all of my guests if we were to write a third volume of High Camp, what is the one movie that you would nominate to be listed? The movie that I am nominating tonight to be listed is a film called Siesta by Mary Lambert oh. from 1987, and it stars. Ellen Barkin. Oh my God. Her future husband, although they since divorced, Gabriel Byrne, a young Jodie Foster, 
And it is about uh, and Martin Sheen. Whoa. Ellen Barkin plays a daredevil woman who uh, jumps out of airplanes. And she is about to do the biggest stunt of her career on July 4th. She's going to jump out of an airplane like into uh, like like the top of a volcano. What? And before she does it, she um, gets a letter from her former lover, Gabriel Byrne, who lives in Spain. And he he's a trapeze artist. And she goes to find him. And his new wife, Isabella Rossellini, is there. And she's so jealous. And he's like, I taught you how to fly. And all you do is fall. So the movie, I'm going to spoil it. You can't, yeah. It's very difficult to find. But I'm going to spoil it. Spoil it. It's a dream that takes place while she's plummeting to her death. The beginning of the movie is her jumping out of an airplane. And then you see the whole movie is a like, series of dream sequences that take her back into her into this like great so, love affair that she had. Oh my god. Yeah. That sounds so fascinating. And it's big. It's like it's really funny at times. It's really broad. Sometimes it um you're like what the hell was that? And then it's also like really really fun and visually dynamic. It's I saw it at a uh screening at the Hammer Museum. Okay. And Mary Lambert was there with Ellen Barkin who was in a suit. And Jodie Foster. Oh, Ellen Barkin divorced that billionaire. Now she has so much fucking money. Yeah, and she doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is extremely cool. She sounds amazing. I love her on... She's a great Twitter follower, too, because yes. she's just, like, so unfiltered and angry. And she should have been... I mean, she was, like, a big star for a while, but she's so great in everything. She's great, and she's so funny, and she's got a great, like, sense of timing that uh-huh. feels almost... um she feels like uh, Barbara Stanwyck to me oh, in a yeah. way. Like her early movies, there's there's just something kind of masculine about her and um, and unfiltered. And yeah. this movie, Siesta, is like it feels like a piece of outsider art, and it's it's messy and weird, and and kind of like David Lynch. And it, it's just a very like interesting piece of that pop sounds culture. right up my alley. And Mary Lambert, she did a series of like more sort of experimental features, and but she was also directing Madonna videos at the time. She did, yeah. She directed Madonna videos. She directed uh, Janet Jackson's Nasty. Okay, she yeah. did some um, uh, Chris Isaac stuff. Oh, wow. What is she up to sting. now? Is she like when you saw her at this? Is she still is she still working in the film industry or? Yeah, uh, well, she she also did like Pet Cemetery. I think she oh, does some yeah. television okay. stuff. She kind of, you know, I think she's just like a working director. Yeah, um, yeah, but maybe not super frequent. Okay. So, I don't know if anybody out there is like looking to hire, hire a director. <laughs> call up, find Mary, Mary Lambert, Lambert, make her do something, and release Siesta on Criterion, guys. Yeah, Come on, it's a really. Weird movie. That sounds amazing. Uh, now, yeah, I want to just go back. Look, I told you the framing device, but if you watch it, you're like, obviously, that's what's happening. I am so it's like, like Martha I do not care about spoilers yeah. for the most part. Every once in a while, there'll be something that I like won't check out, like that movie Parasite that's coming out. I oh, have, I saw it. Oh my god, don't tell me anything. I won't that's say it. one of the few things that I'm like, I need to go in not knowing anything. Yeah, that's smart. But um, this one, you know, yeah, I'll still yeah, enjoy. It's Thirty it. years old. Yeah. Uh. Well, thank you for that nomination. My pleasure. I will add it to the list. Add it to that damn list. Um, anything you want to plug before we go besides the experts? Um, 
the experts. Have you guys decided what you're doing after the Robert De Niro series? Uh, that will be announced in due time. Ooh, okay. we'll do, we're going to do something special for the holidays. <gasps> cool. Yes. You can find us at uh, The Experts 69 on Twitter and Instagram, or just find our podcast. Yay. Me and Aggie. Cool. So yeah, listen to the experts, listen to Goop Yourself, both starring Aggie Hewitt, who's not here tonight. That's right. <laughs> uh, and my Twitter and Instagram is Irene Marquette. Irene Marquette. If anybody wants it. <laughs> um, absolutely. We all do. Uh, if you like this podcast, please go to the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you listen. Give us five stars. Give us a nice review. It helps people find the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at High Camp Pod. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Rucker Bry. And thank you very much. I will see you next week. Bye. <laughs>